Welcome to part one of the ATS section on medical education podcast for December 2017. Welcome, everyone. I'm Deepak Pradhan, and I'll be your podcaster. I'm one of the pulmonary critical care faculty at New York University. This is my first podcast ever, so hoping it'll be good, but it's possible it might be an utter train wreck. (laughs) You'll just have to stick around and see what happens. Luckily for all of us, I'm joined by a thoughtful and thought-provoking medical educator, Adina Kellett, who's a full professor in both the departments of medicine and surgery at NYU, director of Romeo, Research on Medical Education Outcomes, and co-director of our Master's in Health Professions Education Program. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss the concept of adult learning theory or theories. I've heard this term adult learner used to define myself as well as our trainees, but I really want to strive for a deeper understanding of what is an adult learner and how do we leverage that understanding to better reach the adults we routinely interact with and educate. In this podcast, Adina is going to share her insights into the adult as a learner and help us to use that knowledge to be more successful educators. Adina, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Mm -hmm, My pleasure to be here. I wanted to start out by discussing the origins of adult learning theory. Malcolm Knowles, back in 1973, coined this term of the adult learner, calling it the neglected species. What was the need, Adina, to define the adult learner as something different? You know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, Malcolm Knoll was a really breakthrough thought leader because he suggested that adults continue to learn beyond graduating from what at that point uh, was probably high school or college or professional school. And that they were that adults, in fact, are not just large little people, but but have their own sort of um, special needs with respect to learning environments. Um, And that was a breakthrough idea that, uh, again, was in a philosophical domain as opposed to a theoretical domain. He didn't have a lot of empiric evidence for this, (laughs) but he he was certainly um, a really very powerful thought leader. And that beginning, the beginning of that, the what, what in retrospect people think of as the adult learning theory sort of age, Um, was really a wide open space for particularly people in the health professions, right? Health professionals have to learn all sorts of things Hmm. and uh, have to learn really high stakes reasoning, high stakes physical procedural skills, and then have to be able to function as an adult in a usually a very complex environment. And you say high because of the the fact that it's performance on patients and patient care and life and death situations. Right. So while children can learn in a relatively safe environment where the process of their learning doesn't have a big impact on others, um, (laughs) and they they can seek to learn through all sorts of interesting ways, although we weren't teaching children in interesting ways in those days, um... Adults had to learn on the job in complex situations while doing, um, and therefore there was this theory, and Knowles kind of was the first to articulate, that adults need to be able to learn things that are immediately applicable, that are relevant, that are practical, and so he started to develop his theories around that. but was he saying that that adults are different in the way they learn as well, or was it just because of all the external kind of factors of, you know, 
being an adult, having families, working in that environment. So was it environmental or more about how they actually process information? Well, so that was the very beginning of what's called the sort of cognitive psychology era where everything became mechanistic. And we started to think about how the brain works, particularly a focus on memory, short-term working memory, long-term memory, intermediate memory. We had sort of models of the brain and of neuroscience that allowed us to think about how the human brain learns. And it turns out that when you look at it really carefully, children and adults are quite similar in terms of the way they take in new information, process that information, store it, and then retrieve it and apply it. It's just that adults are in very different environments. So I think fundamentally adults and children both need better learning environments. And that was really the kind of take home point from that era was that we were teaching children in ways that didn't, didn't align well with the way that humans learn. And in fact, there's been a revolution in K through 12 education as well as in adult education. Now, when we're talking about the, the this concept of the adult learner, was I, I really couldn't find much in the way of where that is. It legal age of adulthood at 18, or you know, when, when do you become an adult learner, or when was that thought uh, uh, to be? Well, that's the thing. I think that it's a like you said, it's more of an environmental and a practical definition rather than a than a fundamental neurologic difference in mm-hmm. the way adults and children learn and. That's probably one of the big take-home points uh, from the cognitive revolution, <laughs> that brains were thought to become less plastic as you got older, and therefore uh, people believed for a long time that adults needed different strategies in order to lay down new memories. Um, but it turns out that that uh, is not as true as we thought, that adults' brains are highly plastic, that adults can continue learning well into old age, Um, And so a lot of those kind of fundamental barriers between children and adults fell away. So I don't think there is an absolute cutoff chronologically. I think there's a difference in how and where uh, children and adults learn and for what purposes and how high the stakes are. How important is it for that learning to be... Um, applied accurately to be what's called transferred to new and different situations. So it's really very um, environmental and situational rather than the underlying learning theory. Fantastic. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is that old dogs can be taught new tricks. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think the neuroscientists are are more and more, that's a wide open field. Um, We know that people can recover from neurologic accidents that we, when when I trained in medicine, I felt uh, there was no recovery from. So massive strokes, uh, demyelinating diseases. I mean, people of, those were thought to be uh, sort of permanent damage to the brain and its function. Now we have m- a much better idea of what adults, even, even uh, adults who've been through serious um, medical problems can- are capable of learning. And do you see differences between things uh, like at the trainee level or depending on the trainee level versus when uh, individuals are at the faculty level? Are there practical or they're just practical differences? So what's really interesting about uh, learning theories is that, um, and again, adult learning is a framework for a whole set of theories that are relevant to the to uh, teaching and learning in adulthood. Um, that include w- that go way way beyond the cognitive neuroscience of laying down new memories and include things like motivation, emotional factors, other human factors that um, 
are critical to whether or not somebody will learn from a situation. So what you see is not so much that the learning is different, but that the motivation to learn, uh, the barriers, the emotional barriers to learning uh, change with each level of training. So uh, we, we kid around, and this isn't meant to be a joke, that medical students will learn despite us. Uh, you know, they are the Ferraris of learners. They've already demonstrated that they're capable of, of uh, sort of the, the memorization, recall, and regurgitation of large amounts of information. They're very, very successful students in a certain framework, and we select them for those characteristics, in fact. Their ability right. to perform in certain ways. And then we take them and we completely overwhelm them. We put them in a learning environment that they've never experienced before. We push them to their edge. Uh, and that's all over in a couple of years. And then we send them into a clinical environment, which is a very different environment to, to learn in. And the students who make excellent transitions to a clinical environment are the ones who are much more likely to be successful in the long run, independent of how successful they were yeah. up until that point make a really good point about those transitions. I remember thinking about the big gaps in, in level of functioning between medical school to intern year and then to maybe fellowship. Then again, a big one when I made it to attending hood as well. Are there ways uh, that you look at that process that could be better or making better transitions? So that's actually a cutting edge research question in, in what's now become called health professions education because all health professionals make those transitions. And the success with which they make those transitions has implications for patient care quality and safety. And so it's a very high profile um, area of uh, inquiry right now. And we've been doing some experiments uh, trying to prepare our near graduating medical students for transition to internship, where the kinds of things they have to do, the kinds of decisions they have to make under very unique circumstances uh, are are special and never they've never seen them before and most adults don't have to do that so we're preparing them to make decisions under under certain kinds of pressures at certain times of day when people don't function very well um, where the emotional content is very high where their ability to recall um, and apply what they know to a situation is often very new to them they're novices and so we prepare them. Uh, we've been experimenting with preparing them through simulation. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we have a project called Night on Call, where we, we invite them to the simulation center, and over four hours we try to recreate the pressure and series. They see a series of four patients. They give oral presentations. They search the literature. They write orders and notes. They hand off to uh, an incoming intern and they answer phone calls from multiple phone calls while, while taking care, while evaluating patients, making quick decisions about what to do. We ask them to get informed consent on a procedure that they are unlikely to know much about, to deal with family members. And so in a four-hour experience, we put them in the situation that we think they're going to have to function in. And it's low stakes for them. We don't give them grades but they are very, very appreciative at the end that they've had a chance to kind of put it all together for the first time um, before having to become an, in you know, before July 1st. 
Um, and so those are the kinds of transition readiness for tra- for internship transitions that uh, everybody in the field is now really thinking about. Yeah, I've seen a lot of development of transitions to whether it be residency or transitions fellowship, those types of programs. I haven't seen as many necessarily for the graduation and into attending hood. I think that's kind of a ripe area in terms of pre-faculty development, essentially. Absolutely. Um, And in fact, uh, that transition is probably one of the most stressful um, for people, and it's very unexplored. Um, In in nursing, uh, because nurses don't have a GME phase to their training, uh, people have worried on a fair amount about orienting brand new nurses to the clinical environment. And in fact, most employers um, have a up to eight week period of time for nurses that they are highly supervised in that transition. So they they think about that a lot. Uh, Again, it's different in in terms of the structure of what most nurses in the inpatient unit have to do. But I think it is a wide open area for some really good scholarship. Very good points. Um, anything else you can think about in terms of, I'm just thinking about how do you maximize learning for kind of the, the adult learner given their you know time constraints, given the things that are surrounding them, how do you leverage the positives of that kind of learning group versus the negatives? So one of the things we know about uh, humans, <laughs> but but certainly uh, academically inclined humans like physicians, um, is that they're learning constantly, uh, and that they're just if that if we can raise their awareness to what they need to learn to assess their own gaps accurately, uh, you can leave most most adults in the clinical environment to their own devices to fill those gaps. Um, but are we good at assessing ourselves or understanding? Because I find that you write, uh, if you ask somebody how they did on a rotation, it's oftentimes much better than what others believe that they, they did, you know, objectively. Right. So there, it goes both ways. So, so there are people who overestimate and people who underestimate mm. their own performance, and they have different characteristics. And we know a fair amount about that. And we, uh, we do know that what you say is true from empiric evidence, that we're terrible an accurate self-assessment. And without accurate self-assessment, it's very difficult for adults to put their limited resources and efforts toward filling their learning needs. So I think that in adult environments, we need to be more open to uh, the kind of coaching with feedback that uh, that athletes submit themselves to, optimally performing athletes and uh, all have coaches they're always trying to get better and they know that they're they're not the best judge of their own performance and so they they will invest heavily in having other people help them figure out where their learning needs are and then negotiating learning what what we call contracts but the idea that you might identify some gaps and work on them in a committed way over time with a uh, an external other kind of keeping you accountable and honest to your own learning needs. And those characteristics, environments, adult learning environments where that's part of the framework, mm-hmm. where everybody re- acknowledges that they need to learn something, that they're not the best judge of their own needs, and that they need to practice with feedback, um, are environments where people become 
expert at what they do. And I would argue that in, in training physicians, we're not training good enough, um, that most of us want to be continually seeking expertise and maximizing our expertise. Um, and so environments like that tend to be imbued with a lack of trust for self-assessment, mm-hmm. good external, sort of good, under uh, uh, an open environment for giving feedback to each other, uh, and then a, a way of monitoring accountability to those learning goals. Hmm. And as the, the role of the educator or the, the teacher, is it then to kind of steer them in the right directions, that kind of self, uh, self-directed learning? Is it directing them in the right uh, direction, giving them resources, and then allowing them to figure out the, the how to teach themselves? Or are we even more you know, uh, involved in in the how of how they're learning as well. Yeah, so I think uh, that's another way in which uh, probably adults are different than children, although some would argue that children are similar uh, in this way, that if you give, uh, for instance, a very curious child a challenge, build a tower with Legos, or, (laughs) you know, program this little bot to do something that you want it to do, that most children through trial and error will figure out how. So uh, I guess I, what I like to say in, in training and in thinking with scholars about how to improve the education of healthcare professionals is that we should pay much more attention to how people and what people learn and less on how and what we teach them. Because fundamentally uh, our jobs as teachers is to create environments within which people will learn. And everything we know about learning is that people need to be taught how to learn, uh, but less so what to learn, um, because usually, particularly in this technology-enhanced environment, so many resources are available, and people will find a way to fill their own learning gaps if they feel motivated to do it. So you have to convince people they have a gap, Um, and then uh, provide resources and hold them accountable. But I don't think we need to focus as much as we think we do on how and what we teach them. I see. So a bit of a shift from the the setting uh, strict course objectives and focus on the teacher, on what's being taught, and a little bit more uh, shifting over to the learner and what they're actually learning from from, uh, that... uh, that experience. Absolutely. So a teacher's job, I think, is to write the objectives, as, as painful as some teachers <laughs> find that, because the more specific and, um, and, and behavioral you can be about what you want someone else to learn, the more, the easier it is for them to uh, monitor their own success. But what we say and do as teachers is probably less important than what we allow and enable others to do in order to learn the things we know they need to learn. So, uh, you know, really good instructional design. Um, it, we were. It, it includes an active learning component, which is that people generally enjoy learning and therefore learn more and are more motivated if they're very engaged in some solving some problem that is is salient to them. So with clinicians, cases are a great way to do it. Um, 
procedural challenges for surgeons and proceduralists, uh, the, you know, giving people sort of lots of feedback about their technical skills and just challenging them to best their own performance is often the, you know, the best way to maintain what's called mastery learning, right? Mastery learning is when you're challenging somebody with the end goals, right? So as a as a pulmonologist, you need to learn to do certain procedures. Um, you want to challenge somebody by saying what the expert can do and have them build their skills through practice with feedback, practice with feedback, which is in the, in the lay press is called expertise development. Um, the theorists call it mastery learning. This idea that you, you keep giving an, a final exam and you let people develop toward that over a period of time. Hmm. It's fascinating stuff. Now, we've been talking about teaching trainees and faculty, but what about adult education in relationship to patients and patient care? Since this is another group of adults, not with the same experiences in medicine, but how do we get things across to them? How do we educate them about their disease processes or preventative health, etc.? I know some about this field, and there's a, there's a wide sort of literature on patient education, but essentially I think it can be boiled down to some of the same basic principles, which is that people need uh, to be motivated to learn, and in fact patients sort of have a natural interest in their own health and are motivated to probably to maintain that health, and if, health, and if not, uh, there are maybe other other things that need to be worked on but basically people need to be engaged in their own self-care uh, that the fundamental knowledge skills and attitudes that that people need in order to uh, participate in their own care and understand what's going on with their bodies are well known to healthcare professionals and how to impart that um, has more to do with understanding what the gaps, what the learning gaps are, and helping that person fill them in the same way that we talked about before. So um, asking rather than telling is sort of a fundamental principle, I think, in all education. But the idea of asking, what do you already know? What do you already believe about this? How can I help you understand this? in a way that will help you um, feel more um, in control of your own body and health. Uh, What do you have to change or do differently in order to participate in the care that we're recommending? And make that a negotiation between the doctor or the teacher and the learner or somebody who has to learn something and then provide lots of resources for that person to learn what they need to learn. So there may be knowledge gaps, in which case reading's a great way to do that, video, all sorts of ways to, to impart knowledge. Um, I think doctors spend a lot of time trying to impart knowledge when in fact they probably should be spending their time doing is motivating, identifying learning needs and gaps and holding that person accountable to their own commitments to learn, to do something new, to, if it's doing fasting blood sugars or taking medication as prescribed or remembering to follow up with something to really engage um, with that person in 
in ways that will improve their motivation and their emotional ability to participate. And then knowledge and skills, um, we have lots of resources um, in most patient care environments where, where patients can get access to that. You also need to understand barriers like literacy, mm-hmm. and physicians can't assume um, they know what people's experiences in literacy are, and so you need to figure out ways to assess that. So I, what the way I think about patient education is a lo- it's a lot about asking and exploring and a lot less about telling than um, most physicians would naturally assume. Yeah, I think that's uh, incredibly powerful, actually, in terms of how, how we should be providing care and focusing less on us and more on the, the patient and their needs and understanding them better. And I think that really brings them uh, into partnership uh, in their own health. Uh, great points. One other area I was going to talk about with kind of adult learning theory was that of race. I had been reading recently uh, about Stephen Brookfield and uh, his topic of racializing the discourse of adult education and really just thinking more about these topics of whether it be race and gender and how does that apply to adult uh, adult education, adult learning theory as well. So uh, there's a lot to be critiqued in the way we practice education. Um, and we are essentially in this in this country and most Western countries in medical education, the last ba- one of the last bastions of the sort of ancient Western Westernized <laughs> model. Um, there are many ways to train health providers and health professionals. Uh, so it's we do in the Western world probably have a white man's version of what is uh, what an academic institution looks like, who the uh, leaders of such an institution are, how those things get articulated and communicated. I think for most um, minorities in that environment, there is a translation that has to occur. Um, and so if you look at it through that lens, where people feel not fully in the mainstream, not fully normative, then women, underrepresented minorities of all races, and other dis- peoples with disabilities, other people who have been traditionally not in the mainstream, suffer from that extra burden of having to um, live in a cross-cultural environment. They have to understand what, what the implicit and explicit um, expectations are, they need to figure out how to perform in these environments. And I think that that people in the normative, let's just say white men and women at this point, have more of an in, inculcated understanding of that. It's less of a, it's a less um, of a big challenge to make that transition. So if we understand, and we see this in, in novice medical students in particular, that the transition into medical school is very challenging for everybody but particularly challenging for people who come from non-mainstream environments, meaning socioeconomic class Mm -hmm. probably is the biggest barrier, actually. Um, If we're very aware in medical education of our history and and the norms and the rituals and um, and, and don't assume that other people understand them, we make things more transparent, we're more empathic to the 
to our individual students making those transitions, I think we can address much of what comes up. There is, there is sexism and racism in institutionalized medicine. There's no question. It's been demonstrated over and over again. I think acknowledging that, mm-hmm. um, uh, learning how those things manifest and making active efforts to address them. I, I came up in medicine during a time when fewer than 30% of my classmates were female. Um, there was a regular routine, you know, blatant sexism going on. Um, that has pretty much become unacceptable in the last 25 to 30 years. So I, I'm hopeful that we can do that in other ways. I think the other thing to recognize is that um, underrepresented minorities uh, in new academic environments are subject to some pretty powerful emotional, predictable emotional consequences or something called stereotype threat, for instance, which is an internalized concern that other people have ideas and beliefs about you that you will underperform. And under those circumstances, whether it's true or not, people will start to get so anxious and overwhelmed that they can't function at their best. We've noticed that in students and we try to address it outright. And there are psychologists who have done amazing work in sort of how to how to minimize that threat. So that's one, one way that we can address it. For instance, students who are superstars coming into medical school and then start to fail exams. When in fact, they know how to take exams. <laughs> They've demonstrated that over and over again. Those are common things. Then there are the transition into the clinical environment when individuals uh, have very different experiences of um, power in the clinical environment. Uh, patients can be quite prejudiced and mm-hmm. stereotype physicians. Um, yes. Some physicians have to deal with racism and, and gender-based discrimination from many places in the environment. And my experience is that um, the power structure, the people who should be attentive to these things sometimes don't aren't aware. And because they're unaware, they think it doesn't exist. And so we need ways, I think like other institutions in, in the Western world, to become much more sensitive and transparent and smart about how we deal with these things. And I, th- I think that's beginning to happen. Yeah, I think, I think right, shedding some light on this topic, thinking about it, just being mm-hmm. more cognizant about it, it is, a, is a strong step in the right direction. And uh, it's getting me to think that maybe that when we talk about shared experiences, it's not all shared and that we have differences in terms of our past and what you know our experiences are in the medical world and so to be really cognizant about that particularly as we go about you know creating a, a learning environment one of the f- uh, fun and interesting things i learned early on in bedside teaching is that when you have a very diverse team when your medical students and residents and attendings are from everywhere in the world <laughs> and sp- <laughs> that you have resources in that group that that need to be tapped. So language resources, oh, yes. for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, families, patients and families notice it immediately, and we tend to ignore it. So we had many, many Asian students who were pulled over by, you know, side sidetracked by the families because they want to communicate in their own language, and students feel obligated 
for all the right reasons. And as an attending, noticing that and valorizing it as opposed to allowing that to undermine a student's academic performance is was an important way that I learned early on. So Korean-speaking student who was willing to spend many hours with a, right. with a family whose loved one was dying uh, got extra credit from me and not uh, not dinged for not handing that write up in the next morning. <laughs> um, and those are the kinds of things I think we have to get very sensitive to. Fantastic. So I want to turn the topic a little bit to uh, more of a provocateur and uh, Jeffrey Norman, uh, Dr. Norman, who back in 1999 really called into question this idea of the adult learner and called it a mythical species. <laughs> and, and, you know, just to kind of questioning of whether or not this is really some sort of a unique learner group or just as kind of you were, you were indicating more of a continuum. You know, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, his place in all this and your thoughts in regards to some of his philosophies and thoughts? Yeah, so just to point out that all um, scientific endeavors need to have the provocateur in order to keep us honest, and uh, uh, Dr. Norman is is our very special uh, person. He uh, interesting background on him is that he trained as a physicist, um, and so in a very ex- experimental kind of rationalistic uh, right. paradigm. Um, and uh, made a remarkable career in cognitive psychology early in the I- early in the era when we were studying health professionals, and so he has a very broad view of all of these. What I think he's basically saying is a fad, and like other fads, they come and go, and we need to question them. And so I I believe that we need to listen to those questions. I think there are frameworks that get get um, a lot of popular attention for a while because they have face validity. So the idea of adult learning was very important because everybody was thinking, of course, you know, this was in an era when we didn't think adults learned, um, and we didn't really have any way of thinking about adults and learning, and so this was a very powerful framework. But it never really panned out as a theory in and of itself, in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of empirical support to suggest that um, adults are that much different from children in in the way that they learn, uh, in the way that I talked about earlier. Um, and yet still these, ty- these labels persist. And so they're used, the language is used in very non- non-specific ways, which irritate the scientists, um, because scientists are are refuting those things, right? Scientists are actively trying to kind of explore what is truth in this domain, and adult learning as a framework no longer fits what we the detail of what we know. There are many, many theories, learning theories and sociocultural theories and behavioral theories that apply to the training of physicians um, that really probably have little to do with chronological age and more to do with the particulars of what it is we need to learn and how we need to function. So I think that's what Jeff Norman tries to keep us, he tries to keep the feet to the fire. He's a great articulator of these, of these kind of, um, these, these labels that are accepted without 
questioning assumptions. He's a scientist. And so we need those people to kind of um, keep us honest. There is no such thing as a single unified adult learning theory. Yeah, I really need to make a theories or, you know, thoughts. Mm -hmm. And and so what's the common ground? What's the common ground between Knowles and Norman in terms of, you know, particularly going forward in terms of how do we see the adult learner as? So there's two really interesting sort of, there's many interesting streams, uh, three that I want to talk about. One is that um, what Jeff Norman has said over and over and over again, which seems to be most, has most, Uh, support in the literature is that knowledge matters right and so sometimes people use the the label adult learning theory to suggest that it should all be process and that people should be left on their own to learn Um, but in fact very few people would would support that the the foundational knowledge that physicians have is critical to making to almost all measures of clinical competence so what you know matters, not just the content of it, but the structure of that knowledge. So some people have lots of knowledge, factual, declarative knowledge, but almost no structured knowledge, in, and that those structures are really interesting. They call them clinical scripts. It's the way you recognize patterns, the way the experienced physician walks into a room and smells something and knows exactly what's going on because of this accumulated wisdom which is built on knowledge. So. That's the. I think that would be Jeff Norman's kind of take on point. Knowledge matters, not just it's in its volume, but in its structure. And we need to think about how to help our future healthcare professionals structure their knowledge, which is different than having them memorize and regurgitate. And I think that that's. I think everybody's walked away from that model, although right. it's still practiced in many medical schools. <laughs> um, but but memorizing and regurgitating has its place because there is a foundational nature to the to the knowledge. You have to know some stuff in, in order to be a good doctor. Nobody argues with that. In fact, Jeff Norman keeps reminding us that that's true. That all clinical competence is knowledge, is content-specific. You, There is no such thing as clinical reasoning uh, generically. You reason well in situations where you're very knowledgeable and reason poorly in situations where you're not very knowledgeable. And uh, therefore, extensive experience is critical. So how we give people those experiences without exposing patients to danger, there are many strategies now. We have many, many strategies. There's paper cases. There's uh, real clinical experiences. And early and often, there's simulation. There's lots of ways to get people trained up without exposing them to exposing patients to um, novices uh, who are not safe. So that's one domain. Um, Knowles brought to the table the idea that um, adults are very motivated to learn and in fact are most motivated by their immediate need to know. And that I think is really still relevant in the training of physicians. I think we learn best from cases. That's kind of the, right? We learn medical students see a case of, um, I don't know, uh, bush tea induced hepatoma, which was my first case. Bush tea, <laughs> alkaloids, uh, and they never forget those first cases, and they're foundational. And you're just really are motivated. So there's that need to know. Um, uh, adults are pretty motivated by that. Children less uh, um, are allowed less leeway around that, but there are increasingly movements in K through 12 education that 
that focus on children's need, children's ability to learn amazing things like language, <laughs> yes. motor gross motor function, just because they have to, um, because they want to desperately. So the need to know, the immediate relevancy, that's, I think, that's Knowles' kind of contribution. And that moved us away from that industrial model of tra training everybody the same way and through age, through 12th grade, and then, and then you get to specialize. So those are those two things. And then the third set of theories that help us understand how adults continue to gain expertise are the sociocultural theories, the idea that we're not all individuals, um, that it's not all about one brain, uh, but that we learn in communities and we learn through social social engagement. That there's a collective competence. There's some theorists now that are talking about communities of practice. So, a GME program is a good example, right? So you have a bunch of residents or fellows. Fellows might be interesting. You have five fellows, and they're all in this together, and they're all covering each other. And they're all seeing similar patients with similar challenges and learning new skills. And as a community, they each learn more than they would learn as individuals. And in fact, they're interdependent. And there's a whole line of, of educational research now on team-based interprofessional education, how you train people with different expertises to come together and be collectively more competent than any individual. So it's also not just then those individual fellows understanding their limitations, but even on a progr programmatic level of understanding because of the patients they're all seeing and taking care of and the th things and facilities and so forth, there are combined limitations as well. Right. And in fact, those are the kinds of really interesting questions people are asking. Why do doctors screw up from time to time? <laughs> Groups of doctors, mm -hmm. right? We, we make big mistakes. And uh, is it because we're, there's groupthink? Uh, we tend to reinforce each other rather than to challenge each other. Are there ways in which, um, you know, things go wrong in an operating room? Why do we end up operating on the wrong side? Why? Why are people are really asking those questions as learning questions? How can we, as a as an institution, be a better learning culture? And that is goes back to the fundamentals. You know, knowing your own limitations, having somebody on the outside being willing to give you the tough feedback, to set learning goals for yourself, to hold yourself accountable. I think it's still the same framework. Fantastic. This concludes part one of our conversation with Adina Kallet on adult learning theories. Check out part two, where we continue the interview with Adina and discuss her insights on active learning modalities. Thanks. Mm -hmm.